This is a very interesting chapter. We are in Lesson 11, Practicality and Investments. It's a really fascinating chapter. Um, Swamiji brings out in this chapter some just really amazing ideas. Um, it's, it, the lesson is sort of in two parts, and I probably will take two weeks on it. The first part of it is, uh, among other things, he talks about some of Yogananda's predictions for the coming times. And he makes some very concrete and specific suggestions in the course of this lesson about how we should behave. But he, he, from the point of view of what we're working with here, which is we're trying to really understand how to manifest and above all, how to be, how to be in right relationship to the material plane. You know, this course is, is extremely subtle. Um, the more I work with it, the more I'm just... Uh, very impressed about what he's written there. He's really written this for Dwapara Yuga and he's written it for, um, you know, for a revolution in the way that we think about the material world, the way we think about earning money, the way our whole society is structured. I feel a little bit in this lesson that he's, he's telling us about that this is like the answer for a time that we haven't yet come to, that people are going to turn around and want this. And it's right now the, Delusion of things is a little too strong. Um, I was listening to a recording that Swami gave, and I don't know whether it was a, a talk from decades ago or more recent, but he was talking about his image of what Ananda is and how he saw the contribution of the community um, toward Master's work and toward the whole sort of bringing in of Dwapara Yuga. And he talked about, and this might have been when he was talking about the renunciate order. I'm not really certain. I'm a little vague and it doesn't matter. But he was talking about how if, if Ananda from the beginning went too far away from what society as a whole was giving, it might be pleasant in itself for those who were involved in it, but it wouldn't be close enough to what the, the rest of the world was into to actually be taken seriously as any kind of a model. So I think it was in the context of the renunciate order, the new renunciate order, a new renunciate order for a new age that he recently, the book he wrote and so on, where he, he was really talking about it being okay now, 40 years after Ananda started, for a core of people within the community to take a, a step much farther away from what people would consider to be their own way of life. Because there's, there's, there's enough of a bridge being built, people living in, comf- in comfortable, attractive houses, raising families, doing creative businesses, just sort of the life that everyone else is living, except um, uh, spiritually oriented. Uh, years ago when a newspaper reporter came to visit Ananda Village and I hosted him, Ananda was less well-known in the local area. This was a local reporter. And he, he was a little bit disappointed, he had to admit, because he thought he was going to be able to write a more sensational story. He was hoping, honestly, that would be, we would be much weirder than we came out to be, because from his point of view, a story about a weird group living in their own county would, be, would sell more newspapers. And, and he found us to be pretty much like everyone else, and... He, he was having lunch with Swami and still sort of trying to dig a little deeper and hoping he could find something. And uh, uh, he, he made that comment. And Swamiji said, and I vividly remember, he said, oh yeah, we live just like everyone else. And then he said sort of rather quietly, except we put God first. And the reporter essentially had no idea what had been said to him. And it just went right past him because, and he wrote, a, you know, an okay story. But I thought about that for a long time. And in many ways, it became like the defining reality of what we were doing. We do live pretty much like everyone else, except our our intention behind it and our real sense of priority is to put God first. And of course, that changes everything. I had a a very interesting um, insight uh, yesterday. I was talking to uh, one of the uh, young young people in our community, and she was asking me about... uh, the lawsuits that Ananda faced, and she'd sort of heard rumors. She's a teenager now, and she wanted to hear it directly. So I was telling her a pretty short version of a very long story about the things that had happened. And in the course of things, I had to mention that at one point we were 
opposed by this attorney who was just utterly dishonest as a human being. And it was so shocking to be um, involved with a person who preferred to lie. And I don't just mean that he would lie in order to get his way. He just preferred to lie. It's just like even about ordinary things. Like if somebody said, you know, so-and-so went to the market yesterday, he would declare, no, they didn't, just to be troublesome. And uh, in, in the Gita comment, I never could comprehend him. I just even Because he would lie about things that didn't matter. He would lie about things that could be shown to be lies, easily shown to be lies. And then, of course, he would lie about things in the lawsuit that caused us endless grief and difficulty. And that's what he was really doing. But it was just his habit to lie. In, in the Bhagavad Gita commentary, when Swami's talking about tamasic, rajasic, and sattvic energy, tamasic being the darkening quality, Swamiji said, people who have an abundance of this darkening quality tell lies for the sheer pleasure of the confusion it causes. And it was very interesting because that's exactly what that man did. He really enjoyed confusing people. And he didn't have any sort of inner moral scruple that caused him to feel that was a wrong thing. He just liked to create confusion. He liked to, be the, to have the power to create messes in people's lives. I mean, and he was doing that on a big scale, but that's irrelevant to this. So the young girl I'm talking to, who's a very high-minded soul, she said, but, but I can't tell a lie at all. It just feels terrible not to tell the truth. And I listened to her say that, and I realized that's been my own quality in my own life too, from a very young age and from the way I was a- raised. Just, I can't lie. I'm just not able to lie. I finally learned to be polite. And I might be moving, you know, just ever so slightly toward occasionally being diplomatic because I've been way too honest for anybody's own good, but because I just can't lie. And then I started remembering something that Master said where he said, it's not enough to be good merely because it is your habit to be good. He said, you have to be good because it is your nature to be good. Now, I realized that telling the truth has become so integrated into my consciousness that the aberration created by not telling the truth is just unbearable to me. So I just can't do it. I mean, not deliberately. And if I do, I have to go back and correct it instantly. But how many other delusions do we live? You know, a little bit of selfishness, a little bit of wanting our own way, a little bit of greed in this area, a little bit of self-indulgence, and it just sails right past us. And the saints, of course, are intensely scrupulous to the point where other people think that they're extreme. Um, Here's an example that was so touching to me. In the life story of John, I always remember his name now, but I forget, Tratton, something like that. This is a story I've mentioned many times, the book called I Was a Monk. He was 25 years a priest in the Catholic Church. Then he had a deep mystical experience. And when he had a mystical experience, he realized that Catholicism was not a true religion but was a false overlay on the true religion. And even though he'd been a very happy priest, suddenly he knew he had to leave being a priest because he couldn't advocate that religion anymore because his experience had shown him something else. That's the backstory. But he talked about how just once his mind turned away from his vocation, and then he tells this little story. He said, I know that most of you reading this are not going to understand this at all. But he'd been a monk since he was 14 years old. And he said he glanced out of the window of his monastery and there was a woman passing by and her dress was just, the wind was blowing her dress just a little bit against her body. So looking, he could see her body a little bit. He said he looked away and then he looked back. And the moment he looked back, he realized that he was finished as a priest. He said, because before the thought of leaving the priesthood, it would never have occurred to him to look back. He would have just looked away. And, and he did that, not because it was his habit or because it was obedience, but because he didn't want to look. It just wasn't where he wanted his energy to go. And how, and, and you see, many things in our lives, and I can certainly point to many, they've become my habit. And I'm speaking of myself, but all of you know. I mean, I do. I live rightly as much as I can. Some of it I do because it's my nature. Some of it I do because it's my habit. 
But what we really have to make it is we have to make it our nature to do that so it becomes impossible for us to live in any other way because we've, we've, we've become that vibration. I was sharing this with uh, someone, a friend today, this, this thought, and he, he reminded me of how in Autobiography of a Yogi, in the resurrection of Sri Yukteswar, it talks about how in the causal world, even the slightest turning away from the light causes the, gives the causal beings intense pain because their natures are so pure that any movement away from that just causes them immediately to want to turn back. And I've read that many times, but I never actually knew how to understand that until I had this discussion with this girl about not telling lies. Isn't it interesting? But what you see is when you can grab any aspect of the spiritual path from the level of your actual own experience, you see how different it becomes? Then it's not just somebody talking to you about these ideas. And this is one of the reasons I think why it, it serves us, it, like, like ballet dancers take ballet one over and over again, because ballet is simply built on a series of steps. And you, you learn those steps, you learn them perfectly, you learn them in your body, and basically you string them together. Of course, it doesn't look like they're stringing them together. It looks completely different. But from inside, what they're doing is just learning these steps and stringing them together, just one after the other. So they're always going back to the beginning because it's all based on the same things. And so on the spiritual path, you know, we read autobiography again and again. We listen to uh, talks over and over again on subjects even that we know. But each time we come around to it, we're coming at it from a slightly different place. And that same thing, it, we, we, we gradually shift, I think, from it being an aspiration to being a habit to being a, a, the actual vibration on which we live. Um, now, I'm, I'm using all of that as relevant because in this chapter, Swamiji talks about several things. And next week, I think I'll talk about the second half of this where he really talks about the nature of money. It's ex- extremely fascinating. But in the first half, he talks about energy, investments, passivity, and the effect of wrong attitudes. And he, he universalizes this really quickly and makes it about Yogananda's prophecies and where this world is going and how we should relate to that world. And some of you, you know, have heard these discussions a lot. And every time... Swamiji talks strongly about it, and much of the time when I talk strongly about it, I get a a, a wave back. And that wave primarily says, don't be so negative. And then the other half of that is to talk about how, by your thoughts, you're going to create this reality. And Swamiji addresses those issues completely in this lesson, and I really want to talk about them. And then let me sort of tie these two thoughts together. You know, the masters look at this world, and they look at this world fearlessly. And they're not only not afraid for themselves. Um, This is Easter week, you know, when this, this class is happening during Easter week. So we're about to come into the crucifixion of Christ, and you know, I've been immersing myself in that story, you know, to a large extent, to this um, great dark thing that happened to this great spiritual being. And the enormous self-realization understanding of that is the complete fearlessness with which Jesus accepted that, and also how beyond any sense of personal pain he was when that happened. You know, it just It just wasn't in his nature. I was... I was thinking about Swami Kriyananda. Well, I think about him a lot, but I was thinking about this one thing recently. So many times he has talked to us about certain physical experiences he's gone through that are horrific in their implications, Um, but he's talked about his capacity to go through them. One of them is having um, root canal work without any Novocaine. And another one which was amazing is when he had hip replacement surgery and he refused to take a full anesthesia, so they did it with a spinal, you know, they numbed him from the waist down. But the anesthesia was insufficient. So the anesthesia wore off while the operation was still going on. 
I mean, this is the stuff of nightmares. You, know, you hear these things of nightmares. But Swamiji said, if he had expressed the fact to the, to the doctors that he could feel what they were doing, I think they were at the point where they were beginning to sew the muscles together when he you know, came fully out of the anesthesia. Um, he said the only thing they could have done at that point would be to make him unconscious, and, he didn't, and, and I didn't want to go unconscious, he said. Now, they were working on him, and he, was, he gradually came in, he was conscious the whole time anyway, but he gradually came into full, the full sensation of what was being done to him. Not only did he not complain, he obviously neither cried out nor flinched. Because if he had flinched, of course, the doctors would have noticed. And if he had flinched, of course, it would have, you know, terribly interrupted the operation. Same for what was going on in his mouth. You know, mouth is a very small area. If somebody's operating on there, you have to not only keep your mouth open and not instinctively clamp down on the dentist's hand to get his hand off of there, but you have to remain still enough for them to do what they have to do in a very small area. Now, just imagine what kind of control that is. Now, you can picture Jesus up there with his hands on the cross, you know, having the nails put in. Well, maybe that's worse. But Swami's always talking about this. Not always, but he often talks about it. More often than you would think he would talk about it. And he talks about it in a very cheerful way. And he gives us suggestions. He said, well, I was composing music. I just took my mind off it. Or he said, if the pain became too much, I concentrated on the pain but refused to allow my mind to accept it as pain. I just simply described it to myself as a sensation. Pain is just of the mind anyway. Now, I mean, these are really telling us how far advanced the consciousness can be. And, you know, we might affirm a certain courage, but, you know, I tried to have even a filling done once without Novocaine, and that was it. Just one time was enough for me to say, not for me. You know, I'll work on other areas, but I'm not going to work on that one right now. That's just not for me. But what I'm, I'm talking about is we... What I was saying, I was saying that the masters come into this world fearlessly. That's where I was going. And Jesus dealt with all that he had to deal with absolutely fearlessly. So there's the, the, the lack of fear for their own personal reality. That who cares what happens to me? I'm impersonal about myself. It doesn't make any difference. But there's also this complete fearlessness about the nature of the world as a whole. It doesn't mean that they don't perceive it. It doesn't mean that they don't weep for this world or for the suffering that people have to go through. Look at the story of Kashi in Autobiography of a Yogi. This was Master Sri Yukteswar's, as Yogananda describes it. Even a master is not beyond you know, these preferences. And, and Master tells the whole story about how Master had this attachment to Kashi. He had a charm that no one else could see. But then Kashi, it's Kashi's the right name? No, that's not the right name. Kumar? Kumar. Yeah, Kashi was the one who died. Kumar, I think, was his name. But in any case, and against Sri Yukteswar's advice, he went back to his village, stayed a few months, and then when he came back, Yogananda delicately says he had, he had adopted certain habits that made him unsuitable for ashram life. You can read between the lines about what that might mean. And so Sri Yukteswar comes to Master with, you know, with tears in his eyes and says to Master, you have to tell him to leave. I can't bear to do it. The world must be his guru for, for a time. You know, I wanted to help him. I can't help him. Master wept when certain disciples left the ashram. Jesus wept for, for Jerusalem. He, he looked at Jerusalem before he was the whole, meaning the whole Jewish people who were rejecting him. And he, he wept because he knew what they were about to do and what that karma would mean for them. And Jesus in that moment said, you know, how often would the prophets have gathered you under their wings like a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you would not have it. Meaning, the, you know, your, your people would not have it. We would have saved you, but you wouldn't have it. So now the world must be your guru for a while longer. And great compassion comes out of them it's the way it has to be. Judas, um, Jesus at the Last Supper says, you know, one of, you, one, who, one of those who shares my table will betray me. John says, which one, Lord? He says, the one to whom I give this bread. And then he looks at Judas and says, that which you are about to do, do quickly. 
And Judas essentially had his guru's permission to go and betray him. So he, he went off and did it. Or, you know, go, isn't that, that's exactly what he said, isn't it? Yes. Anyway, um, because they understand that people have to gradually come to a right understanding. And it's like, it's the kind of karma in the, in the Gita. It talks about, you know, tamasic, rajasic, and sattvic karma. Sattvic karma is like a, a little smoke obscuring the fire, like that, and the fire is exposed. Rajasic karma takes a little more energy. It's like rust on a silver mirror. You can wipe it off, and then the mirror shines, but it takes a little effort. Tamasic karma is like the babe in the womb, and it takes nine months for that baby to grow. And no amount of, it ought to be different, and no amount of affirmative thinking, and no amount of refusal to accept that it takes nine months to grow a baby is going to make that any different. Because that's just the nature of the karma. That's just simply what it's going to take. Or the silver mirror. No amount of puffing on it is going to change it. It has to be scrubbed away. And the masters are fearless about this. They don't mind. They don't object. They don't rebel. Now remember the very, very first lesson? I always come back to the first lesson. The absolute fairness and inevitability of karma. That it's a mathematical, scientific principle. We can have all the opinions in the world, but it just is what it is. You know, I, I can uh, skimp on my meditation because it is my habit to meditate, but it is not entirely my nature to meditate. But I can't lie. Or I find it much more difficult to lie because I've, one is a habit and one is my nature. I'm trying to make my nature to be a meditator, but I'm still working on it. Do you understand? Swami's nature, I think, is to meditate. And many people's nature is to meditate. My nature is to serve. You know, So I'll get up and help someone. And I find it hard not to do that. You know, when we were just a little thing, dealing with the costume, somebody asked me for something, and I said no. And then for... For several days, I just had to keep thinking about that because I had said no and I had to really think for a long time whether it was okay to say no because I don't want to say no. You know, I always want to say yes. It's just easy, but I'm just talking about watching, you know, how things work. So what Swami talks about in this lesson is he just talks about the way things are. It's nine months till the baby comes out of the womb. And the only reason we would even consider that to be a negative statement is because we want the baby to come out sooner. You know, the mother is uncomfortable. It's time to have it finished. Or I want the baby and I want it now. Or I want the mirror to shine, but I don't want to work. And we have to be able to just look at things as they are and not cloud our perception because reason follows feeling and the heart has fear or the heart has attachment or the heart has laziness or all the different things that the heart has. And one of the reasons, you know, he really wants us to understand this is because where there is dharma, there is victory. Nothing will ever come to us by doing something that isn't quite right because something has interfered with our ability to see what's right and have the courage to follow it. Sometimes I say we have to do our dharma, do our righteous action, in sort of a little vacuum. I, many times in my life, I've drawn a little circle around myself and just sort of said, I just can't see what the consequences of this action will be. And it may even be that I have a little anxiety about the consequences, but I just have to take the, the next step has to be a step into righteousness. I can't take a step away from righteousness. And then there just has to be this really deep trust that where there is dharma, there is victory. And alternatively, a fear that if there is unrighteousness, I will be defeated anyway. And that, see, ultimately is what makes us good, is because we don't get what we want by being bad. Sometimes it's not our habit to be good, but we have understood the inexorability of karmic law, and therefore there's no point. I know uh, I've shared with you before that the man who uh, gave the seminars for, for terminally ill people and had them make the two lists, and the first list was everything that they would miss by dying, 
you know, my daughter's wedding, my son's graduation, my first grandchild. And the other was everything they would get to avoid having to face because they died. And of course, it turned out that what they got to avoid having to face was really of enormous importance in terms of their healing themselves, whether they lived or died. But that, that concept that you can get away with it. But when I first heard this, I thought it was very intriguing, so I sort of was going to make two lists just for fun. But I had a really hard time writing down anything on the what I don't have to face list because I face it now or I face it later. And it just like it was a really hard time for me to feel that if I got away with it now, it wasn't just going to catch up with me tomorrow. And if it caught up with me tomorrow, it was going to be now and it was just going to be as much of a bummer. So the whole idea of trying to avoid, I mean, I can hardly claim to face with unflinching courage whatever comes, but at least there was enough understanding that even the concept that I could avoid anything made that list blank. You know? Do you see? Now, in the world at this time, conditions are not good for reasons that must have seemed like a good idea at the time to us. We have chosen to incarnate in a very confused era on a planet that is full of lots of not nice people. And we are really experiencing certain objective conditions. And those objective conditions are not subject to whim or opinion. They're just objective conditions. And those conditions will have karmic repercussions. And because we live on this planet, we have decided to be part of this planetary karma. And we have to be, have the same calm courage that the masters have in the face of this. Now, before I get specific, I want to back up a lot farther. And I want to just sort of now just talk with all that behind us. Let me fill in a little bit of what he talks about here. Swami, this, this is called practicality and investments. This lesson is named that. And um, when this course first came out, what everybody remembered about lesson 11 is that Swamiji was not enthusiastic about investing in the stock market. And that's sort of like the thing that stuck in everybody's mind. And this became the lesson that was against the stock market. <laughs> and I remember reading it and thinking that at the time. So it was very interesting to read it again and realize really how very, very subtle what Swamiji is saying here and how, how much more it is than just whether we invest in the stock market. He's, he's, this lesson is, is really about money and how to get it and what money means. And so he starts with talking about, uh, he said there's two aspects to investment. The first is what we do with our money, and the other is what we do with our time and energy. And uh, the first kind of investment, Swami's just very blunt in paragraph two, seeks to profit from other people's time and energy, is how he puts it. This might be called modern absentee landlordism. <laughs> and then he refers to the passivity, which he uses the French Revolution as the example, where the French aristocracy, landowning people with great wealth that they took out of the peasants' lives, and the peasants labored, and they lived in luxury, and till finally the peasants became enraged. And they um, wipe them out, pretty much, a lot of the aristocracy. I don't know much, that much about European history, but a friend of mine has made a great study of the kings of England. Uh, we were having this discussion. At what point did the monarchy, we asked our friend, lose so much of its power, you know, in England? And she said, well, when they killed Charles the something or another, that had a very strong effect on the monarchy. <laughs> you know, just sort of at a certain point, people just became enraged and they went after them. And it was the um, karmic response to what Swamiji calls just passivity in just trying to take without actually trying to invest our time and energy into the creation of wealth. And I'm, I mean, I've, I've so often had people talk to me and they'll tell me about some wonderful business idea that they have that will only take a little of their time, that will bring them an enormous amount of money, and uh, then they'll have all that time to do all these other things. But that beginning equation, which is that this is a great idea and it will only take a little time, 
And I always sort of just sort of start right there and wonder, but, you know, if you don't invest energy into it, how do you think the energy is going to come back to you? And it's always a question in my mind, even as he's written here, is it even right to think? that? I mean, is it even karmically appropriate to think, I'll just give a little energy and I'll get a lot back? Now, sometimes people inherit money, sometimes people have very good karma and end up with lots of money. It's not like um, reaping your good karma and becoming wealthy is in itself a bad thing. But it's very important to understand what the dynamic of how this happens is. Because we can always turn good karma into bad karma, or we can squander our good karma. That's what he uses the great example of the absentee landlordism. And he presents the stock market partly as a thing in itself, but also as he presents it as the symbol of this passive attitude of greed which has become very all-pervasive in our culture to such an extent that people think it's clever to think that way. It doesn't even occur to them that there's something a little bit karmically off about it. Now, Swami writes, you know, that um, when a person invests money in stocks, he says he is helping others to succeed, but he's also hoping that they'll devote their time and energy, as Swami puts it, to making him rich. I was absolutely amused once on the radio. I was listening to a, uh, a couple of young people. This was, you know, before when, when this was more possible in that bubble of time that we lived through here, when people would make these companies and then do these IPOs and then this huge, they would become bazillionaires overnight. And these two young men, they were not, 20, not, yet, not yet 25, and they'd hit upon one of these ideas. They'd put the company up. They reaped this huge profit. And some older man is talking to him on the, uh, on the radio, interviewing him, and he says, well, you know, how does it feel? You're not even 25 years old, and you've already earned, you know, 30 times what your father earned in his entire life. How does that feel? And the young man said, well, I don't know. It seems right to me. After all, I've devoted two years of my life to this. And it really did seem right to him, because after all, he put two years of his life into it. You know, and I thought, this, this country, where is it going? You know, it's, I don't begrudge the man. He obviously had the karma. You don't, that doesn't happen to you unless somehow you have karma from the past. But what a profound misunderstanding. You know, that two years of my life should make me a bazillionaire. And then you see these young people who happen to be talented at sports, and now they don't even go to college. They just come right out of high school, and they sign on to these, because they don't want to play in college, because what if they get injured? And if they get injured, then their bazillion-dollar body is useless to them, so they want to get right in there and get their mazillion dollars right from the start. You know, and so you're 18 years old, and you have a mazillion dollars. A mazillion, mazillion. And it's just like, and everybody just sort of thinks that this is right, and there's not a perception that this is so wacky, just completely wacky, because you have to invest time and energy just because it's karmically appropriate. Even to have the thought form that you don't have to do that just puts everything out of balance. And, and that's where our society is heading. And this is a very serious problem. And it's, it's pervasive, especially in America, it's pervasive. Swami writes you know, a lot about America itself. Um, but he's, he, he really says sincerely, if you're investing in the stock market... Um, with the desire to gain without effort, you know, then it's, it's a karmically just simply inappropriate thing to do. Whether you win or not, it's karmically inappropriate. Now, of course, I know people are going to answer, well, I work hard at my investments, and that's fine. It's not, it's not, I'm not really saying one should or shouldn't live a certain way. I'm saying we have to think about what, the, what we're reaping, what we're sowing, because what we sow, we will reap. And if we have fallen into, and remember when we were doing the yamas and niyamas just a week or two ago, talking about covetousness, about greed, about wanting something that doesn't really belong to us, trying to get something that we haven't really earned. Now, maybe by shrewd investments, we feel we have earned it. But there has to be somewhere an investing of time and energy. And when Swami talks more about the nature of money and why it's a delusion and how you can combat that delusion, it becomes a question of what you do with your time and energy. Somebody wrote me a question through the internet 
Let's see. I either got it from Maria or I got it directly. It was an interesting question now. Let me think if this was published. I think it was a published one. I think it's on their, their blog of questions, Ask the Experts. I'm not wanting to betray someone's confidence. I'm trying to think about this. But the nature of the question was, there was a woman wrote and said, basically, I can afford to hire people to do all the things I don't like to do. Is that okay? You know, I don't like to cook, I don't like to clean, so I just pay people to cook and clean. I said, you know, there's no reason to do those things if you don't like them, if you have the good karma not to have to, but what are you doing with the time that you're buying? That's the question. It's not wrong to be able to escape from tasks that seem boring to you, but what are you doing with the rest of your time? Where are you investing your time and energy? I, I was... I, I think I have this accurately, that one of, that Steve Jobs' original partner was, his name was what, Wozniak. I, th- I think I saw this accurately, that I just read somewhere, you know, that after he became so wealthy through all of that, he, he went off and worked with children. I think that's true. He just lost interest, you know. He had all this money, and then he'd gotten it through his creative work. But once he had it, he started investing his time and energy into something that was deeply meaningful to him. You know, even uh, uh, whoever the Microsoft man is, who's Bill, Bill Gates, you know, that he's just taken that phenomenal wealth and just really started investing it into the world. Not that he didn't work for it, but it's not just a question of what you get, it's both investments. And bear in mind, and this is the other delusion that I have seen indicated so many times, this business is going to give me lots of money without much effort, and I'm going to give all that money to Ananda right? (laughs) But what about now? Where is your time, energy, and money going now? Because how is that going to happen if your time, money, and energy is not in karmic balance right now? That's why, and I'm going to stop for a moment and talk about my favorite subject, which is called, yes, tithing. That's why I love tithing. I presented the idea of tithing to someone recently and what I immediately got back was a long story about all their financial difficulties. I answered back at the end of the long story, which was a very impressive tale. I think you should tithe, you know, as if I hadn't been spoken to, which was not really like the response that they were looking for. But I said, you know, you've just described to me a terrible situation. You really need to tithe. And I said, I'm not talking about, we don't need your money, but you need to give it. Because you're coming here, you're taking what's being offered to you, you have to give back. And the mere unwillingness, the mere fact of being unwilling to give the money is about what Swami talks about later, where you think money is going to give you security, but that thought quickly turns to fear. Because it's outside yourself. But tithing, you see, says... A percentage of everything that comes into me belongs to God. That's how I keep the balance. Whatever comes to me, I give a percentage. Do you understand the concept of percentage? I'm, I'm, I'm teasing, but sometimes I feel like I talk to people and I say percentage and they just say, you know? It's like you don't understand. If you only have 10 cents, you only give a penny. But you give a penny. Because otherwise you're just taking And otherwise, you're taking responsibility for nothing. You know, this is like, if if you receive inspiration, you have to give back. That's the karmic balance. Where are you investing your time, energy, and your money? If it's just, I'll do it when, I'll do it later. And 10% tithe, you know, people just get so uh, tense about that. If they're wealthy, they're just horrified because the check is huge. And if they're poor, they're terrified because they're not going to have enough. And so, you know, both attitudes are what need to put us in right relation to the, the, the temple in Seattle. That whole beautiful temple was built by this wonderful, generous couple who started tithing when they had nothing. And then by the dint of extremely hard and creative work, the man was very lucky, you know, made some, had some wonderful patents. And when the tithe was a million dollars, he still wrote it because it was their habit. You know, the first tithe was like five or 50. You know, 10 years later, it was a million dollar tithe. But it was the same check, just 10% of whatever came in, just like that. You know, and it's part of why it works. 
because anything else, and I'll talk about it more in a few minutes, but that's our real wealth. And if we invest our financial wealth in the source of our inspiration, you see, you're really using the money that's given to you. Otherwise, you're just using the money to keep yourself going. But if you're drawing inspiration from somewhere, you have to invest in that source of inspiration because then the inspiration will increase. When Swami first, when we started tithing, first started tithing at Ananda Village, we were so broke. I have to try to explain to people how broke we were. Again, I was talking to this young person and she lives up in the meditation retreat at Ananda Village, the institute now. And uh, they're, they're very... Um, I think that, that property keeps you impoverished somehow. So the whole system that runs up there just, you know, runs, it's a 25-cent operation, and it runs on, on, on 22 cents. So they're always squeezing everything. And she was specifically complaining about, we're having a discussion about food and cooking in the kitchen. So she was talking about the food that's served up there. And, you know, she has champagne tastes. <laughs> and she's having to live on raisin bran a lot. Cheap raisin bran. And we were just discussing it back and forth. And I said, you know, you need to practice being poor. It's very good to practice being poor. Later I went back and said, you're living on your parents' money. Someday you're going to live on your own money. You need to practice being poor so you won't be so shocked when it happens to you. And I said, when we lived up there, I, I said, I got $50 a month. That was my salary, $50 a month. It's true that I was able to live on the land without having to pay rent. I had a rent waiver. But I had to buy you know, shelter and food and heat and clothes, which I never bought any. I just waited till somebody gave them to me for $50 a month. And then every so often, Swamiji would invite us to go to Carmel with him. <laughs> I mean, it, well, this was 35 years ago, but still, you know, he'd take us to Carmel. And I don't, I, to this day, I don't know how he did it. I had a jar. I've, I've told you about my jar. I had a pottery jar, and I kept my money in it. I really never looked in. I would just reach in. And then we started tithing, 10%, which of course was the giant sum of $5, but it was still 10%. But it was like, especially on those trips to Carmel, you would just feel like we don't dare stop tithing at this point. We just couldn't possibly stop tithing because if the flow stops, we are sunk. You know, we are just so far under if the flow stops. So you would just always... And I mean, in the, I don't handle our family money now. In those days, I handled all my own money, and it was all just cash. Somebody would give me, pay me $15 or something. I would get change, and I would put $1.50 into another envelope. I never put that 10% into my own pocket because it was never mine. Whatever would come in, I would divide it before I put it away. That's my little simple brain. That's how I worked it. Because I also just, I never thought it was mine. I got 90% of whatever came in, and the other 10% belonged to God. We were in this together. And as long as I kept passing that out, this kept coming. And, you know, it would come in just remarkable ways. Because, you know, we would really run out of money. I mean, I'm not, when people say they run out of money, that's just like, it just means that they're, you know, their savings and their 401k and their house and their this. I mean, we would run out of money. You know, like money, none. I had parents true. If I was really stuck, I could have phoned them. I was never that stuck, to be very fair. And I lived in a community of friends. But you would just run out of money. And then people would invite you to dinner five nights in a row. People would bring vegetables over. Or Gary McSweeney's brother, Ananta, always knew when I was broke. And he would hand me money. He just somehow always knew when I was broke. And he would just sort of walk up and he would just slip like that. And he would just hand me money. He was just my protector. You know, and I always took it gratefully because I needed it. Once I actually found money in an old coat. I found like $20. You know, $20 was a huge amount of money. How could I have lost it in a coat? I have no idea. I don't think it was there before. But I just needed it. There it was. I mean, those are little stories. I'm not, that's not operating on a very large scale. But you could feel the relationship. And you know why? because I was investing my time and my energy into God's work, and the only reason I was broke is because I refused to withdraw it from that. Because I could have gone out and earned as much money as I wanted at any time. But money was not the issue. It was, where am, what am I doing with my time and energy at that point? You know, money is never... I've always had enough, and I've never had that much. And, but the, you keep the karmic balance. You're not doing it for greed. So... This is what he's really trying to say. And when he also says here, 
For business to be in harmony with karmic law, it should have also as an important motive service to others. Now, I appreciate that many times many people say, my intention is to serve, and when I am in a better financial position, I will. But the difficulty is if you don't start that flow of energy in this moment, one, will you ever be in that position is another question, and two, who are you kidding? You know, like we need to make this instinctive. This needs to become our nature to be good, that we can't live unless we're serving. And of course, it's not everybody's destiny to be able to work full-time to serve the guru's work. It's just not everybody's destiny. So if your destiny, for whatever reason it is, is to work outside of that environment, it should make you uncomfortable if you're not giving money. Because why not? And that's the question I always ask people. You know, why aren't you giving it? Oh, you know, this and this and this. But what you're actually saying, what a person is actually saying, is I don't have enough faith. And then the same people will come and say, oh, you know, my meditations aren't going well and this and this. We have to live these things. We can't just talk them. Because an important moment motive has to be service to others. Business nowadays, unfortunately, Swami says, is motivated increasingly by greed. All he's describing is the world we're living in. That's all. And then, when he starts talking about Master's predictions, he's just talking about the inevitable karmic consequences of that and the necessity for that to balance out. And he talks about, you know, cataclysmic events, but it's all to bring this back into balance because we just can't keep doing this. Everything goes up and down. We just can't keep doing this. Individually, we can't do it, and as a society, we can't do it. I'm going to take a brief break. I've gone a little over. Let me give you a pause, and then I'll come back. We'll come back. So take as brief a break as you can. Um, With that little bit of an introduction, Swami dives in immediately. I shall begin this lesson by discussing a probable event in the near future, which every student of this course ought, I believe, to be aware of. (laughs) And then he speaks of an impending financial crash. And he doesn't base that on either logic or his own thought, but he lived with Paramahansa Yogananda. This is the origin point of this this whole concept. He lived with Yogananda for three and a half years. That's 1948 till 1952, you know, in that period of time. Toward the end of 48, Swami came. And he said, Master talked about it all the time. He was always telling his audiences that the greed of the world and the greed of America was going to bring about an enormous financial collapse. And Swamiji said, he talked about it, as he said, with, with fervor. It wasn't just, oh, in passing, oh, by the way, you know, economic conditions might change. He thundered his warnings, as how Yogananda put, Swamiji put it. And, you know, sometimes when people protest a little bit, you, Swami says, I was there, I heard him. I heard him speak about this. You don't know. And then Swami goes on to say he not only spoke about depression, and he implied, somebody else quoted that hyperinflation, which is to say, paper money not being uh, losing its value to an extraordinary extent. But he also used the word cataclysm. And Swami deals, and I'll deal with a little bit, with the concept of cataclysm and what that might mean. And Swami, this was like now 60 years ago almost. And he said, the way Master talked, it was like it was tomorrow. And, and Swamiji, from the time I've known him, you know, 1971, 69, It's always been just part of his reasoning. And one of the reasons he wanted to start a community, draw people together, is because we need a model of living that is more economical, that's more cooperative, that's less based on excessive acquisition, where people are working together and can take care of one another because of this time that's coming. He said that uh, this depression will make the previous depression, it will be much worse than the previous depression. I mean... Most of us, all of us, did not really live through that with very conscious memory if we lived through it at all. I think none of us were old enough to live through it. We may have heard about it from our parents. I know my aunt, who's 89 now, and has worked very hard and invested her money very smart, you know, and is is reasonably speaking well-to-do now with plenty of money to take care of herself and her husband, who's 95. 
but very, very, very frugal. You know, just like intensely frugal and very unwilling, un- uneven in the way she spends money is what I would say. Sometimes she spends it freely, but sometimes quite unwilling. I was trying to coax her to just relax a little bit and just do what they needed to do and not be so concerned. And she just looked at me. I lived through the depression. She said, like that. And I just realized, you know, what we just have never experienced, most of us, which is where we don't have money and can't get it. It's quite one thing to not have it, but there's always in this culture, there's always been the option of being able to get it. And Swami talks about that, that just Americans, he's contrasting now America and India, He said, because India has always had poverty, that even if people are coming up economically, the concept of poverty is a very familiar one. They see it, you see it every day in India. I mean, one of my most vivid impressions of people being poor is this elderly woman sitting in a very plain sari, looked like probably the only thing she owned, sitting on the side of the road, selling garlic one clove at a time not even a bulb, one clove. I mean, so many realities were demonstrated by that. Her trying to make a living, having so little money that she would buy one bulb and break it apart. Then, of course, people coming to her who could only afford one clove. And her, what, I mean, what kind of a profit would she make on one clove of garlic? But it was like that was the, that was the circle that she had to work through in order to make a living. You know, it's unheard of in our in the wealth of America. We just can't even imagine that. And he said, because we've been wealthy for so long, because we have good karma and we work hard in this country also, um, we just imagine that that's just going to continue forever. And, and we don't see how that assumption of wealth has just gradually um, confused us about um, time and energy investment. And it, it, we're only thinking about money investment. And how it's just inevitable. It just has to come back. And it's not, as Swamiji says, it's not negative to just describe what is. If you look at the wall and you see that half the wall is painted black, it's not negative to say, oh, look, look at the black wall. It's just a black wall. In fact, negativity is the fear of calling that wall black when it's so clearly black. That's when emotional confusion sets in. And that's what negativity is, is just to be emotionally confused. But he also said, and I'm very touched by this, but he, he also said that um, uh, Yogananda did not predict, predict destitution for America. He said that Americans would lose half their wealth. But he said Americans are so spoiled that that loss may seem devastating to us. You know, I thought that was very interesting. So he said, however, the positive side of all of this is that when we, when we break out of this habitual greed that has become our way of life, he said, we'll be much more spiritual. And then at the end of this lesson, which I'll deal with next week, when we really talk about the nature of money and what the, that delusion is, we can see how that's, when that's taken away from us, you know, how it will be easier to settle into our spiritual nature. You know, it's, um, um, in certain ways, although I'm, I'm concerned about what might happen and how we're going to weather it. On the other side, I often think there's just going to be this huge sigh of relief um, when the sort of rock rolling downhill, you know, just finally hits the bottom. And we simply can't do a lot of what we think we have to do right now. You know, Swami talks later about just... uh, how poor people are sometimes happier than rich people because they can't even entertain desires. They just can't have them. When I was living on $50 a month, um, I just, I was very, very comfortable because it never occurred to me to want anything that costs money. <laughs> it just didn't even cross my mind. There was just no point in entertaining it because anything that cost money, cost money was really beyond my reach. I would only spend money when it involved going somewhere with Swami and then I would spend the money. But otherwise, you know, I lived on popcorn and crackers and peanut butter because I didn't, for a long time, I didn't have a refrigerator, so I had to just live very light. I was young, and none of it made any difference. We didn't have a car. When 10 of us bought a Volkswagen, got a Volkswagen bug together, actually it was belonged to one girl, and then all 10 of us bought into the car. (laughs) 
I mean, it was just like thrilling. It was just so exciting because we suddenly had access to a car. What an amazing concept. Of course, our life didn't require it. I mean, there was a certain inherent integrity to what we were doing. I have to be fair. My brother lives extremely cheaply. He doesn't have a car, among other things, and a friend wrote him because the friend became unable to work and he knew that my brother Lee lived very frugally. And so Lee suggested, well, first of all, you have to learn to get along without a car. And the man just couldn't go there. And that was basically the end of the conversation. You know, but you can get along without a car if you don't have a car. But everything in your reality has to come down into an acceptance of what is. And that's why he said, later on, he says, the most important thing one can do to get ready for this event is to adjust one's expectations. And, and that's why I was saying to my friend, you know, get used to being poor. You think you're always going to be rich? You know, you're always going to have your parents to take care of you? Enjoy the Raisin Bran or think of some, you know, more creative way to solve the problem. But adjust our expectations because most of suffering is mental. It's, it's that, that thought that it ought to be different than it is. But then he also talked about um, uh, Swami talks about our relationship to nature, which is really a very interesting part of this. And he talks about how in this obsession to get, you know, in, on a planetary sense, we've sort of acted like that, that the creation is an inert object just simply there to gratify us. You know, this, it, this is all about what we give back. The whole theme of this, le- this lesson is whether we're giving back or not. And he, he recites here what has been said, that um, the nature spirits, the angelic beings that sort of have created the abundance of this earth, used to be respected, used to be propitiated in certain ways. And sometimes we think of that as superstitious, but in fact, it's a, it, everything is a relationship. Everything is conscious. And our whole attitude toward the natural world has also been one of just seeing what we can get out of it and how little we can give back. You know, we take as much as we can from the soil and we don't feed the soil. We, uh, uh, just everything is, is on a, a basis where there's no harmony with the natural flow. And the earth is a conscious force. And when Master speaks of cataclysms, Swamiji just comments, well, you know, it's just the earth itself is just going to get fed up. And, and everything is conscious. And he says man's consciousness is the most powerful on the planet. But all of this um, dissonant energy is just going to upset the natural balance too. At least that's what he reads into it. So the earth itself will respond. Then Swamiji just talks about, you know, just the simple fact of how much hatred there is in the world and how we see it increasing. And this goes back right to where I was starting. You know, we don't want that to be true. Um, I know when uh, the 9-11 event happened, there was a, a lot of different responses to that. But one of them is, oh, well, we mustn't think ill of the terrorists. You know, that would be unkind. We don't want to... And Swami just said, you know, if a wild dog attacks a town, you have to stop that dog. You can't just go out and say, nice puppy, nice puppy. He's not a nice puppy. He's a wild dog. And that doesn't, you know, words like that coming out of the mouth of a spiritual person, it's a a very interesting fact. Because he doesn't have any animosity toward that soul. It's just, this is a fact. This is a wild dog and he has to be stopped. And you don't do that individual a favor by pretending that he's not a wild dog. And in fact, Master made a very interesting statement about Gandhi's success in India. He said the reason Gandhi succeeded with his nonviolent movement in India is because the English people have a deeply ingrained inherent sense of fair play. And he also said that the English are inherently gentlemen. Despite everything, you know, they have a, a co- an inner code of honor. Swamiji said he went to um, school in England for a while. And he said he just was deeply inculcated into, into all the students. It's just what he said once, for example, a punishment was given to him, and the punishment was 
that he should not go swimming three times when he wanted to. And it was simply assumed that he would carry it out and he would follow it. I mean, it never crossed anyone's mind that he wouldn't. And Master said if Gandhi had practiced that against, and he raised the concept of Russia, or you can think these days of communist China, it would have no effect whatsoever. You know, it would just be, he would just have been killed, and everyone would have been killed, and that would have been that. But the British, you know, the British consciousness couldn't stand up against that, the unarmed person willing to die. I mean, the British did some pretty horrific things in that process, but in the end, the power of that righteousness couldn't stand up against it. However, there's real evil in the world. And it's a very hard thing to meet. And I, was, I started out earlier talking about that lawyer that we had to deal with when we were involved in that trial. The whole experience of Ananda being sued in the way that we were sued, which is um, with lies. We were not sued with truth. If there had been truth in it, we would have conceded it, but we were sued with lies from start to finish. You know, lies about Yogananda's work originally and then lies about um, bad behavior on the part of individuals. Just lies, just outright, straightforward lies. It was so shocking. And one of the reasons that it it took us a while to get our footing in defending ourselves, which is one of the reasons that not everything went our way, is because for so many of us, not for Swami, And part of what happened in those lawsuits, it was amazing, was like from the first minute, Swamiji saw everything that was happening and he declared it. He declared the intentions of the people who were suing us. He declared the rightness and wrongness. He declared what what their strategies were. And we were just like too naive. Oh, you know, that can't really be true. You know, we should just think more positively and we're so good and people can't really be behaving like that. And then what happened was, over 12 years, we were just in the company of people who were that evil, who just lied because they preferred to lie. And, you know, it became interesting. It's like, do they know they're lying? I mean, Flynn lied because he liked to lie. But there were a lot of people lying. And, you know, we would discuss with ourselves, do you think that so-and-so knows they're lying? Or have they so convinced themselves that that's really the truth? I watched one particular woman who was really lying, and it was very interesting. I I decided she really knew because I watched her come to certain points in her story which were completely false, and I watched her sort of work it out in her mind and then figure out how to say it, you know. So I, I felt at that point that she knew exactly what she was doing, but nonetheless, but it was it was. Um, very, very, very helpful to really be in the company of, of evil. And that's the only word for it. Because people who are consciously trying to hurt you and using untruth to try to hurt you and want to hurt you. And I'm not trying to be frightening, but I, Nidruva, um, Sheila Rush, and I were involved in this a lot. Nidruva is a black woman. She is a little bit older than I and was, you know, her, her, fa- her black family was the first family to move into a certain neighborhood. She was one of one or two black people to be in her high school. She was the first black woman to go to Harvard Law School. So she's been in the vanguard of that. And then after she graduated from law school, she worked for Martin Luther King. So she, she really has been in the vanguard. I was raised Jewish. She actually experienced prejudice in her life. I just knew about it from what had happened to the Jews. So both of us, you know, like little kids, we ended up a whole lot of times, just the two of us with our, our, our other lawyer, in front of these lawyers, sitting in depositions and things like that, partly because we lived here and because she was the lawyer and I was her friend. <laughs> just, we were so innocent. We were so little. You know, sometimes I would just feel like a little child there. And one of the lawyers who was, who was crazy, I mean, this one man, that compulsive liar, Flynn, was... Uh, smart. The other man was just crazy. He actually drew a caricature of Sheila and pushed it across the table. You know, like a caricature of a black person and pushed it across the table. It wasn't even hurtful. It was so ridiculous. But I've always wondered about Nazis. I've always wondered how educated, otherwise refined, artistic people who might even have been seemed like good company could become Nazis. And somehow, sitting there, I, I understood it. I felt like God gave me the answer. It's like a kind of evil mist comes over someone's consciousness, 
and you no longer exist as a real person. It's just like you're sitting there, but they're so embroiled in their own fantasy world that you're just not there. And, you know, afterwards I said to uh, Nidruva, I really feel if they could pull out guns and shoot us, they would. And I really think they would have. It's just that they couldn't because then they would have ended up in prison. But if they knew that they could, they would shoot us. Just for no reason. Just because they could. Now, God willing, we'll never have to deal with anything like that. Swamiji described that lawyer as, I love this phrase, the closest thing to the personification of evil that we are likely to meet in this life. (laughs) Which I thought was pretty true. And I loved the part that we are likely to meet, you know, that we're not going to meet it again. But it made me unafraid to call a spade a spade. And that was worth a lot. Because I'm, I'm, I no longer live in a child's world where everything is fine. I recognize people can be really bad, and they can do really bad things, and they cannot know it. They can, they can either be consciously evil like this one man, or the instrument of evil, or just stupid and going along with the crowd, but they'll do it. And they will do it. And that's the planet we live on. And they are doing it. And the karmic law will have its retribution. And we thought it was a good idea to be here when it happens. You know? So, there we are. And now, on that cheery note, I'll probably send you home, but I'm going to add this little bit to it. The masters don't flinch. They're not even slightly afraid about this. They're not even tense about it. Because it's a doorway to a more beautiful reality, even for our society. What to speak of us as individuals. You know, the karmic law is always fair. And the karmic law is always fulfilled for our ultimate bliss. So if we look around at the conditions of the planet and just see what's likely to happen, why would we be afraid of that? That would have to mean that somehow we think God is not in charge, that the divine doesn't dwell within us, that God won't give us what we need in order to deal with it. It may mean that things will be different than we thought they would be, but let's adjust our expectations. And once we adjust our expectations, we're just living in what's real. We need to do what works. We need to relate to reality as it is. This is the secret of manifesting. And what we really want to manifest, above all things, you know, is that state of divine bliss. And along the way, we want to feed our families, we want to protect our friends, we want to help people, we want to be um, the survivors who can build a new society. And, you know, we need to be on the side of good. And since this is all a karmic balance, the quicker we get over to the side where it's all trying to go, you know, the more um, we'll be able to ride it without being knocked over. So, end of story. I'll leave it there. If you have questions or comments, why don't we save them for next week since it's a little bit late. If you think you forget them, you can email me them to me earlier. Okay? Does that work?